Chapter Twenty Seven of Mary Marston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Mary Marston by George MacDonald. Chapter Twenty Seven. Mr. and Mrs. Helmer. The next morning, Mary set out to find Letty, from whom, as I have said, she had heard but twice since her marriage. Mary had written again about a month ago, but had had no reply. The sad fact was that, ever since she left Testbridge, Letty, for a long time, without knowing it, had been going downhill. There have been many whose earnestness has vanished with the presence of those whose influence awoke it. Letty's better self seemed to have remained behind with Mary, and not even if she had been as good as she thought him, could Tom himself have made up to her for the loss of such a friend. But Letty had not found marriage at all the grand thing she had expected. With the faithfulness of a woman, however, she attributed her disappointment to something inherent in marriage, nowise affecting the man whom marriage had made her husband. That he might be near the centre to which what little work he did gravitated, Tom had taken a lodging in a noisy street, as unlike all that Letty had been accustomed to as anything London, except its viler parts, could afford. Never a green thing was to be looked upon in any direction. Not a sweet sound was to be heard. The sun, at this time of year, was seldom to be seen in London anywhere, and in Lydgate Street, even when there was no fog, it was but askance, and for a brief portion of the day, that he shone upon that side where stood their dusty windows. And then the noise, a ceaseless torrent of sounds, of stony sounds, of iron sounds, of grinding sounds, of clashing sounds, of yells and cries, of all deafening and unpoetic discords. Letty had not much poetry in her, and needed what could be had from the outside so much the more, it is the people of a land without springs that must have cisterns. It is the poetic people without poetry that pant and pine for the country. When such get hold of a poet, they expect him to talk poetry, or, at least, to talk about poetry. I fancy poets do not read much poetry, and except to their peers do not often care to talk about it. But to one like Letty, however little she may understand or even be aware of the need, the poetic is as necessary as rain in summer, while, to one so little skilled in the finding of it, there was none visible, audible, or perceptible about her, except, indeed, what, of poorest sort for her uses, she might discover bottled in some circulating library. There was one, blessed proximity, within ten minutes' walk of her. Once a week or so, some weeks oftener, Tom would take her to the play, and that was, indeed, a happiness. Not because of the pleasure of the play only, or chiefly, though that was great, but in the main because she had Tom beside her all the time, and mixed up Tom with the play, and the play with Tom. Alas! Tom was not half so dependent upon her, neither derived half so much pleasure from her company. Some of his evenings every week he spent at houses where those who received him had not the faintest idea whether he had a wife or not, and cared as little, for it would have made no difference. They would not have invited her. Small, silly, 
conceited Tom, regarding himself as a somebody, was more than content to be asked to such people's houses. He thought he went as a lion, whereas it was merely as a jackal. So great is the love of some for wild beasts in general, that they think even something of jackals. He was aware of no insult to himself in asking him, whether as a lion or any other wild beast, nor of any to his wife and himself together in not asking her with him. While she sat in her dreary lodging, dingily clad and lonely, Tom, dressed in the height of the fashion, would be strolling about grand rooms, now exchanging a flying shot of recognition, now pausing to pay a compliment to this lady on her singing, to that on her verses, to a third, where he dared, on her dress. For good-natured Tom was profuse of compliments, not without a degree and kind of honesty in them, now singing one of his own songs to the accompaniment of some gracious goddess, now accompanying the same or some other gracious goddess as she sang, for Tom could do that well enough for people without a conscience in their music. Now in a corner of a conservatory, now in a cosy little third room behind a back drawing-room, talking nonsense with some lady foolish enough to be amused with his folly. Tom meant no harm, and did not do much, was only a human butterfly, amusing himself with other creatures of a day, who have no notion that death cannot kill them, or they might perhaps be more miserable than they are. They think, if they think at all, that it is life, strong in them, that makes them forget death, whereas, in truth, it is death, strong in them, that makes them forget life. Like a hummingbird, all sparkle and flash, Tom flitted through the tropical delights of such society as his uncommon good luck had gained him admission to, forming many an effervescent friendship, and taking many a graceful liberty for which his pleasant looks, confident manners, and free carriage were his indemnity. For Tom seemed to have been born to show what a nice sort of person a fool, well put together, may be, with his high-bred air and his ready replies. For he had also a little of that social element, once highly valued, now less countenanced and rare. I mean, wit. He had, indeed, plenty of all sorts of brains, but no amount of talent could reveal to him the reason or the meaning of the fact that wedded life was less interesting than courtship. For the former, the reason lay in himself, and of himself proper he knew, as I have said, next to nothing. While the latter, the meaning of the fact, is profound as eternity. He had no notion that, when he married, his life was thereby, in a lofty and blessed sense, forfeit. That, to save his wife's life, he must yield his own, she doing the same for him, for God himself can save no other way. But the notion of any saving, or the need of it, was far from Tom, nor had Letty, for her part, any thought of it either, except from the tyranny of her aunt. Not the less, in truth, did they both want saving, very much saving, before life could be to either of them a good thing. It is only its inborn possibility of and divine tendency toward blossoming that constitute life a good thing. Life's blossom is its salvation, its redemption, the justification of its existence, and is a thing far off with most of us. For Tom, his highest notion of life was to be recognized by the world for that which he had chosen as his idea of himself, to have the reviews allow him a poet, not grudgingly, 
nor with abatement of any sort, but recognizing him as the genius, he must contrive to believe himself, or perish in his self-contempt. Then he would live and die in the blessed assurance that his name would be for over on the lips, in the hearts of that idol of fools they call posterity, divinely as vague as the old grey fate, and less noble, inasmuch as it is but the supposed concave whence is to rebound the man's own opinion of himself. While jewelly Tom was idling away time which could yet hardly be called precious, his little brown wife, as I have said, sat at home, such home as a lodging can be for a wife whose husband finds his interest mainly outside of it, inquired after by nobody, thought of by nobody, hardly even taken up by her own poor, weary self, now trying in vain after interest in the feeble trash she was reading, now getting into the story for the last half of a chapter, to find herself, when the scene changed after the next, as far out and away as lost as ever, now dropping the book on her knee, to sit musing, if, indeed, such poor mental vagaries as hers can be called even musing, ignorant what was the matter with her, hardly knowing that anything was the matter, yet pining morally, spiritually, physically, now wondering when Tom would be home, now trying to congratulate herself on his being such a favorite, and thinking what an honor it was to a poor country girl like her to be the wife of a man so much courted by the best society. For she never doubted that the people to whose houses Tom went desired his company from admiration of his writings. She had not an idea that never a soul of them, or their guests, cared a straw about what he wrote, except, indeed, here and there, a young lady in her first season, who thought it a grand thing to know an author, as poor Letty thought it a grand thing to be the wife of one. Hail to the coming time when, those who write books outnumbering those who do not, a man will be thought no more of because he can write, than because he can sit a horse or brew beer. In that happy time, the true writer will be neither an atom the more regarded nor disregarded. He will only be less troubled with birthday books, requests for autographs, and such like irritating attentions. From that time, also, it may be, the number of writers will begin to diminish, for then, it is to be hoped, men will begin to see that it is better to do the inferior thing well than the superior thing after a middling fashion. The man who would not rather be a good shoemaker than a middling author would be no honor to the shoemakers, and can hardly be any to the authors. I have the comfort that in this all authors will agree with me, for which of us is now able to see himself middling? Honorable above all honor that authorship can give, is he who can. It was through some of his old college friends that Tom had thus easily stepped into the literary profession. They were young men with money, and friends to back them, who, having taken to literature as soon as they chipped the university shell, were already in the full swing of periodical production, when Tom, to quote two rather contradictory utterances of his mother, ruined his own prospects, and made Letty's fortune by marrying her. I cannot say, however, that they had found him remunerative employment. The best they had done for him was to bring him into such a half-sort of connection, with a certain weekly paper that now and then he got something printed in it, and now and then, with the joke of acknowledging an obligation irremunerable, the editor would hand him what he called an honorarium, but what in reality was a five-pound note. When such an event occurred, 
Tom would feel his bosom swell with the imagined dignity of supporting a family by literary labor, and, forgetful of the sparseness of his mother's doles, who delighted to make the young couple feel the bitterness of dependence, would immediately, on the strength of it, invite his friends to supper, not at the lodging where Letty sat lonely, but at some tavern frequented by people of the craft. It was at such times, and in the company of men certainly not better than himself, that Tom's hopes were brightest, and his confidence greatest. Therefore such seasons were those of his highest bliss. Especially, when his sensitive but poor imagination was stimulated from the nerve side of the brain, was Tom in his glory. And it was not the few glasses of champagne, of which he talked so airily, that had made all the honor of crowning him king of fate and poet of the world. Long after midnight, upon such and many other occasions, would he and his companions sit laughing and jesting and drinking, some saying witty things, and all of them foolish things and worse, inventing stories apropos of the foibles of friends, and relating anecdotes which grew more and more irreverent to God and women as the night advanced, and the wine gained power, and the shame-faced angels of their true selves, made in the image of God, withdrew into the dark until at last, between night and morning, Tom would reel gracefully home, using all the power of his will, the best use to which it was ever put, to subdue the drunkenness of which, even in its embrace, he had the lingering honor to be ashamed, that he might face his wife with the appearance of the gentleman he was anxious she should continue to consider him. It was an unhappy thing for Tom that his mother, having persuaded her dying husband, for Tom's sake, to leave the money in her power, should not now have carried her tyranny further, and refused him money altogether. He would then have been compelled to work harder, and to use what he made in procuring the necessaries of life. There might have been some hope for him then. As it was, his profession was the mere grasping after the honor of a workman, without doing of the work, while the little he gained by it was, at the same time, more than enough to foster the self-deception that he did something in the world. With the money he gave her, which was never more than a part of what his mother sent him, Letty had much ado to make both ends meet. And, while he ran in debt to his tailor and bootmaker, she never had anything new to wear. She did sometimes wish he would take her out with him a little oftener of an evening, for sometimes she felt so lonely as to be quite unable to amuse herself. Her resources were not many in her position, and fewer still in herself but she always reflected that he could not afford it, and it was long ere she began to have any doubt or uneasiness about him, long before she began even to imagine it might be well if he spent his evenings with her, or, at least, in other ways and other company than he did. When first such a thought presented itself, she banished it as a disgrace to herself and an insult to him. But it was no wonder if she found marriage dull, poor child, after such expectations, too, from her Tom. What a pity it seems to our purblind eyes that so many girls should be married before they are women. The woman comes at length, and finds she is forestalled, that the prostitute and mutilated dragon of a girl's divinity is all that is left to her to do the best wish she can. But, thank God, in the faithfully accepted and encountered responsibility, the woman must at length become aware that she has under her feet an ascending stair by which to climb to the woman of the divine ideal. There was at present, however, nothing to be called thought in the mind of Letty. 
She had even lost much of what faculty of thinking had been developed in her by the care of cousin Godfrey. That had speedily followed the decay of the aspiration kindled in her by Mary. Her whole life now, as much of it, that is, as was awake, was Tom, and only Tom. Her whole day was but the continuous and little varied hope of his presence. Most of the time she had a book in her hands, but ever again book and hands would sink into her lap, and she would sit staring before her at nothing. She was not unhappy, she was only not happy. At first it was a speechless delight to have as many novels as she pleased, and she thought Tom the very prince of bounty in not merely permitting her to read them, but bringing them to her, one after the other, sometimes two at once, in spendthrift profusion. The first thing that made her aware she was not quite happy was the discovery that novels were losing their charm, that they were not sufficient to make her day pass, that they were only dessert, and she had no dinner. When it came to difficulty in going on with a new one long enough to get interested in it, she sighed heavily, and began to think that perhaps life was rather a dreary thing, at least considerably diluted with the unsatisfactory. How many of my readers feel the same? How many of them will recognize that the state of things would indeed be desperate if it were otherwise? How many would go on and on being only butterflies, but for life's dismay? And who would choose to be a butterfly, even if life, and summer, and the flowers were to last for ever? I would, I fancy this and that reader saying. Then, I answer, the only argument you are equal to is the fact that life, nor summer, nor the flowers do last for ever. I suppose I am made a butterfly, do you say, seeing I prefer to be one? Ah, do you say so, indeed? Then you begin to excuse yourself, and what does that mean? It means that you are no butterfly, for a butterfly, no, nor even an angel in heaven, could never begin excusing the law of its existence. Butterfly, brother, the hail will be upon you. I may not then pity Letty that she had to discover that novels taken alone serve one much as sweetmeats ad libitum do children, nor that she had to prove that life has in it that spiritual quinine, precious because bitter, whose part it is to wake the higher hunger. Tom talked of himself as on the staff of the Firefly, such was the name of the newspaper whose editor sometimes paid him, a weekly of great pretense, which took upon itself the mystery of things, as if it were God's spy. It was popular in a way, chiefly in fashionable circles. As regarded the opinions it promulgated, I never heard one, who understood the particular question at any time handled, say it was correct. Its writers were mostly young men, and their passion was to say clever things. If a friend's book came in their way, it was treated worse or better than that of a stranger, but with impartial disregard for truth in either case. Yet many were the authors who would go up endless back stairs to secure from that paper a flattering criticism, and then be as proud of it as if it had been the genuine and unsought utterance of a true man's conviction. And many were the men, immeasurably the superiors of the reviewers, and in a general way acquainted with their character, who would accept as conclusive upon the merits of a book the opinions they gave, nor ever question a mode of quotation by which a book was made to show itself whatever the reviewer chose to call it. A scandalous rumor of any kind, especially from the region styled high life, often false and always incorrect, 
was the delight both of the paper and of its readers. And the interest it thus awoke, united to the fear it thus caused, was mainly what procured for such as were known to be employed upon it the entree to houses where, if they had had private existence only, their faces would never have been seen. But, to do Tom justice, he wrote nothing of this sort. He was neither ill-natured nor experienced enough for that department. What he did write was clever, shallow sketches of that same society into whose charmed precincts he was but so lately a comer, that much was to him interesting, which had long ceased to be observed by eyes turned horny with the glare of the world's footlights. And, while these sketches pleased the young people especially, even their jaded elders enjoyed the sparkling reflex of what they called life, as seen by an outsider. For they were thereby enabled to feel for a moment a slight interest in themselves objectively, along with a galvanized sense of existence, as the producers of history. These sketches did more for the paper than the editor was willing to know or acknowledge. But the Firefly produced also a little art on its own account. Not always very original, but, at least, not a sucking of life from the labor of others, as is most of that parasitic thing miscalled criticism. In this branch Tom had a share, in the shape of verse. A ready faculty was his, but one seldom roused by immediate interest, and never by insight. It was not things themselves, but the reflection of things in the art of others, that moved him to produce. Coleridge, I think, says of Dryden, that he took fire with the running of his own wheels. So did Tom, but it was the running of the wheels of others that set his wheels running. He was like some young preachers who spend a part of the Saturday in reading this or that author, in order to get up the mental condition favorable to preaching on the Sunday. He was really fond of poetry, delighted in the study of its external elements for the sake of his craft, possessed not only a good but cultivated ear for verse, which is a rare thing out of the craft, had true pleasure in a fine phrase, in a strong or brilliant word, last and chief, had a special faculty for imitation, from which gifts, graces, and acquirements, it came, that he could write almost in any style that moved him, so far, at least, as to remind one who knew it, of that style, and that every now and then there appeared verses of his in The Firefly. As often as this took place, Letty was in the third heaven of delight. For was not Tom's poetry unquestionably superior to anything else the age could produce? Was the poetry cousin Godfrey made her read once to be compared with Tom's? And was not Tom her own husband? Happy woman she! But, by the time at which my narrative has arrived, the first mist of a coming fog had begun to gather faintly dim in her heart. When Tom would come home happy, but talk perplexingly, when he would drop asleep in the middle of a story she could make nothing of, when he would burst out and go on laughing and refuse to explain the motive, how was she to avoid the conclusion forced upon her that he had taken too much strong drink, and, when she noted that this condition reappeared at shorter and shorter intervals, might she not well begin to be frightened, and to feel, what she had dared not allow, that she was being gradually left alone, that Tom had struck into a diverging path, and they were slowly parting miles from each other? End of chapter 27 Mr. and Mrs. Helmer, 1890-1910